Hi, everyone. I'm Nathan, the host of this podcast, and tonight I'm honored to be joined by Professor Samuel Starr Richardson. Professor Richardson is an expert in economics and game theory. He is an award-winning professor who has taught at Boston College and the University of Texas at Austin and is currently teaching game theory at Harvard Kennedy School. For this episode, we will be focusing on the two fields of economics and game theory, specifically their intersection with politics and social justice. Hi, Professor Richardson. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Nathan? Doing great. Thank you so much for hopping on this podcast. So just getting started with the question we ask every guest, if you could have a dinner for two with any figure at any point in history, who would you choose? What would you talk about and why? I, I would choose Mark Twain. And I would choose Mark Twain for a particular reason, which is that I would want to talk with him about the current political situation in the U.S. And I feel like Mark Twain would have insight into what's going on. Um, he would be incisive in his comments. And I just think that his sense of humor would make the dinner um, extremely enjoyable for, for both of us. So, um, so that's why I would choose Mark Twain. No, Mark Twain's a longtime favorite of this show. I think a few episodes back or in the beginning, we used to always talk about his quote about how history always rhymes. But um, yes. in regards to your comment, actually, about um, his view on the current situation, I know you've recently began teaching a class on game theory and political polarization. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, this was a class session where we talked about um, the main model of uh, po political positioning for candidates that exists. And the traditional model um, is that we have um, candidates who are choosing their positions on some spectrum from left to right, from liberal to conservative. And they choose their position in order to maximize votes. And they're motivated solely by winning the election. And they win votes from everyone who's closer, closer to them on this spectrum than um, to the other candidates. So they get voters who are spread out between left and right. The voters choose the candidate who's closer to them. And this model has a very clear and stark prediction, which is that both candidates will run to the center. That is, this is known as the median voter theorem. And the candidates will align themselves with the voter right in the middle. And the reason they'll do that is because if they move a little bit to one side or the other, then the other candidate, candidate has somewhere they can go to win the election. So if the first candidate moves a little bit to the right of the center, the other candidate can move a little bit less to the right of the center and get all of the people to the left of them and win the election. So this seemed to explain things reasonably well for a lot of presidential elections in the US. Um, thinking back, uh, an example I like to use is thinking back to George H.W. Bush versus Bill Clinton. These were both moderates in their party. Um, particularly in comparison to what the parties look like now. So there was a lot of overlap 
um, between where Democrats would be and where Republicans would be for a very long time um, in the in U.S. politics. And uh, you can look at at other elections um, that um, you had uh, Clinton versus Dole, where both of them were moderates. Um, you had Bush versus Gore, where both of them were relatively moderate, although you were getting a little bit more polarization there, but not as not that much. And then you fast forward to 2016, and you have um, particularly Donald Trump moving far away from the center. Um, and the, the traditional model can't explain that in any way. Mm-hmm. And so what we were doing in this, in this class session is having students try and figure out what are some modifications we could make to this model that could potentially explain political polarization, um, which is just not a possibility in the, in the starting model. So some of those things that we could change are we can think about um, whether, whether voters are motivated to vote. So if, if you add in something where voters aren't going to vote if the candidates are identical, why would I bother going to, the, going to the polls if the candidates have the same positions? It's just a waste of my time because whoever gets elected, they're going to implement the same policies. And so if you add something in where people have the option to not vote if they're not sufficiently motivated to vote, then you can start getting the candidates moving apart from each other to attract people to vote that are towards their end of the spectrum. And this really um, only works if we have the voters being polarized. So if we have the voters being polarized with some people far to the right and some people far to the left, then it can be, um, we can get an equilibrium where the candidates chase the voters, one to the right, one to the left, and they try and fire up their base and try and get vote high voter turnout among their side. Yes. So, so that's one thing that we can add to the model that could could explain political polarization. But then the question comes, why are the voters polarized? Mm-hmm. So why has there been this move towards the extremes by voters? And you can imagine um, various reasons for that. And one is the, the, um, the divergence of media or the the move away from having sort of centrist news media that everyone watches so that everyone kind of agrees on the facts, um, has their own opinions, but the facts are shared among people. We no longer share the same facts. And if people aren't sharing the same facts, then it's hard for them to come to agreement about what the right policies are because they're essentially living in different informational worlds. Um, and it's not clear is are kind of the news organizations and politicians and the elites, are they becoming polarized and the voters are following them? 
where are the voters becoming polarized and the media and politicians are following them? Or is there some interplay back and forth where they are somehow following each other in this self-reinforcing cycle where everyone runs to the extremes? No, I think that it's a self-perpetuating vicious cycle, as you said. Um, in my opinion, I would probably guess that the first signs of polarization were with the politicians and just coming in from a different lens and believing in a more institutionalized version of history. I think that because of this initial polarization in candidacy, that those in power control the media and hence people began being forced to choose between one or another rather than something more moderate like we were seeing in the past. But with that being said, um, what could be some possible solutions now that political polarization is almost an accepted reality in the world we live in? It's a tough question. Um, I think that there are ways that we can change how elections work. So another... Um, Another source for how we can explain polarization is the primary system in the U.S. So in the primary system in the U.S., you have each party holds a primary to decide which candidate will go and um, engage in the general election. And historically, candidates in the primary would try to appeal to their party. And then for the general election, they would move towards the center. Um, now, in this, in current um, elections, particularly for the United States Congress, um, you have gerrymandered districts. So you have districts that are made to be safe for Democrats or safe for Republicans. And if we've got gerrymandered districts um, where the candidate only has to worry about their primary opponent, so if you've got a safe Democratic district and the Democratic incumbent um, is only really worried about a challenge from another Democrat, then they have an incentive to move towards the extreme. And it's even worse because primary voters tend to be the most motivated and probably more extreme voters than general election voters. Um, so I think one modification that we could make is we could implement systems that get around gerrymandering, that, that avoid gerrymandering. And um, there's been a fair amount of work on how to sort of define what gerrymandering is beyond just, you know it when you see it, when you see a district that looks like, um, you know, a, uh, a candy cane, or, you know, it looks like a very strange shape. Um, and moving towards a nonpartisan system to define districts so that we have far fewer safe districts for Democrats and Republicans and far more competitive districts would force those candidates to move more towards the center. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I think that with these polarized political parties, um, who ends up losing is most likely the people. It's the people whose political leader didn't get elected. And 
in this sense, the political climate and pivoting a bit to public economics, like which policies with this current political climate could potentially be implemented to improve general social welfare? That's another really tough question. Um, and with this level of polarization, I think that most domestically oriented policies, if, if it's a major policy, it's going to be very hard to implement. We're not going to see a major overhaul of the US healthcare system like we had with Obamacare. We're not going to see um, major social welfare legislation. We're not going to see major reforms to Medicare or Social Security. Um, but where I do think that there's a window of opportunity is um, policies that improve U.S. economic competitiveness. Um, and I think that both parties see um, a threat from China when it comes to economic competitiveness, and they want to make sure that the U.S. can, can continue to compete. And so uh, things like um, President Biden's move to encourage more um, semiconductor production in the U.S. Those are the types of policies that I think we could get some compromise around. Um, and both sides would have to get something. And so there would be economic development. Um, Democrats would have to get some um, most likely uh, move towards more green energy production. Um, Republicans might want some, um, some more uh, promotion of U.S. manufacturing or um, other U.S. Um, economic interests. And I could see potentially there being room for compromise um, when it comes to an economic bill. Um, but I don't expect to see Congress do very much in the next two years. Yeah, that um, the point you brought up reminds me of this podcast I was watching the other day, and they were talking about globalism, globalization, and how something that could bring the two political parties together and something that we have increasingly see states do is hold on or create these incentives like subsidies to keep manufacturing within borders. Because, for instance, with the U.S. employment, um, that would be a huge boost to it. And even if the return on investment might take a little bit longer, like potentially that's something that the government can agree to and is willing to do. Um, in this sense, actually, is has globalization or this extent of globalization been beneficial to social welfare, economic welfare for um, the general public? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that economists across the political spectrum almost all agree about is that global trade has been a net benefit for everyone engaged. Um, and when you look at countries that um, have, um, have had inward-oriented policies where they are not trading much with the outside world. Think Argentina during the 20th century, um, North Korea. Um, these countries have not done well. 
Um, and, and really, trade allows countries to specialize in the thing that, things that they're best at. So trade is allowing um, the United States, for instance, to put a lot more of their resources into, say, the finance industry, to services, um, to high tech, um, and import a lot of the manufacturing that has become very expensive to, to engage in in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, now, that's not to say that everyone wins with increases in, in trade. So the U.S. still has a 25% tariff on imports of light trucks. Um, this has been around for about half a century. Um, and this is great for the U.S. auto, manuf auto manufacturers. Mm -hmm. um, so they, that allows them to sell their pickup trucks for, another, for an extra few thousand dollars apiece. Um, that's good for employment in that industry. And so there's a strong political constituency to keep those tariffs in place. Um, the workers at auto plants and the, the auto manufacturing companies themselves have strong incentives to lobby to keep that tariff in place. Whereas the, the costs of that tariff are much more diffusely felt. Is someone going to base their vote on whether they had to spend an extra couple thousand dollars on a pickup truck? Probably not. But is someone going to base their vote on whether they lose their job at the auto manufacturing plant? Absolutely. And so um, this is a case where um, the losers from free trade are often concentrated and lose quite a bit, whereas the people who gain are more diffuse. And the total amount that they gain is greater than what the losers lose. But when we have a concentrated minority who really care about an issue, they will very often win out when it comes to the, the political um, discussion. No, I think what you said was very interesting. It's basically utilitarianism. I think that globalization all at the end of we consumers benefit. Um, the laptop that we're using for this um, broadcast meeting was made possible, was made at an affordable price due to these um, interconnections between these different states. And yes, with economics, a field that I know you've done a lot of research and published a lot of work in, but something we haven't yet covered in the podcast um, is health economics. Do you mind giving a quick overview to our listeners? Sure. So my PhD is actually in health policy with a focus in, in health economics. And um, in the U.S., healthcare represents over a sixth of the U.S. economy. So this is a huge industry. And health economics looks to understand what's going on in this industry. And, and there are some health economists who are really more focused on, on developed countries and understanding the healthcare system in developed countries. And that's more where I sit. Um, and other health economists who are looking at um, health and development and health economics in developing countries. And they're looking at a very different set of issues because their healthcare challenges are very different from those in developed countries. But um, I've done work on 
understanding the, the incentives that healthcare providers face. So what is the right way to pay healthcare providers to get them to provide the right quality of healthcare? Um, I spent quite a bit of time trying to understand Obamacare um, and what are the incentives that Obamacare placed on, for instance, health insurance companies and how they price their products and who's going to buy from which, which health insurance companies um, and what those costs are going to look like. Um, and there are health economists who look at the incentives for pharmaceutical companies and how should we design our patent system to get pharmaceutical companies to have strong incentives to invest in research and development, but also have their products at least eventually be cheap enough that everyone can who needs them can afford to get them. So there's a wide range of topics under the heading of health economics, but all of them are tied together by trying to understand how incentives and systems around healthcare um, work within the broader society and how health outcomes and economic outcomes can be tied together. No, I found what you said, especially about the vaccines and patents to be, or um, medical supplies and patents to be incredibly interesting because economics is sort of, to my understanding, works on the assumption that we'll make choices that maximize utility or maximize um, gain. And in this sense, there are these debates or articles advocating for having no patents on things like COVID-19 vaccines. So everyone could have gotten them earlier with the mRNA. But at the same time, there needed to be some sort of incentive for developers to create them. And so striking that balance, as you said, must be very difficult. Have there been any new um, thought breakthroughs recently in that? So there's one policy that has been sort of kicking around in this area, which is rather than providing a monopoly, a patent to a company that develops a new drug or vaccine, specify what you want a new drug or vaccine to be able to do and provide a substantial um, financial um, prize, basically, to a company who manages to develop it. So. Here, we're thinking about um, in, in high tech, there have been all of these prizes um, that have spurred development of things like self-driving cars, um, space, space flight, private space flight. Um, and if we could harness those types of prizes in the pharmaceutical industry, where, say, the United States government would say, um, if you can come out with a new antibiotic that is able to, um, to treat uh, diseases that are resistant to our existing sets of antibiotics, we will pay you however many billion dollars. Um, that would provide an incentive. But then along with that, the company would have to accept price controls on the final product. So they would get a big bonus right at the start, but they wouldn't have the patent for them to have uh, market exclusivity for an extended period of time. It's fascinating. That sounds like 
it could potentially solve the problem with companies' profits. They just get it up front with a lump sum, but they have to share the information. Yeah, and so the last topic I wanted to cover in this podcast um, takes a little bit of a turn from health economics, but is about Ukraine. Like we talk um, in previous podcasts about keeping Ukraine central and in the media and in the situation. So from a game theory perspective, what are some models of negotiation that have been applied to the um, Russian-Ukraine war right now? Yeah, so the the most commonly used model of negotiation, um, and we actually talked about this also in, in the class that I'm currently teaching, um, has a um, has one of the sides, say Russia, making some peace offer to Ukraine, saying you we will annex these areas and we will not fight anymore and um, and you can accept it or not. And then Ukraine responds, yes or no. Um, and if Ukraine says no, then Ukraine makes a counteroffer. And then Russia is, responds, yes or no. Now, in this model, negotiation is costly. So every round of negotiation costs the side something. You can think about this as the war continuing. As the sides are negotiating, that's costly for both sides. And in some cases, in some models of this, we have the game proceeding indefinitely. So it could go on forever. If everyone always says no, it'll just keep on going and no one will end up with anything good um, because they will incur all of these costs from negotiation um, in perpetuity. Um, and the unique equilibrium in these games is that the first offer gets accepted. And what happens is the, the player making the first offer foresees the rest of the game and what will happen in the rest of the game and knows what offer the responder um, to that first offer will accept and offers them just enough to make them accept and the other side also looking forward and seeing what happens in the rest of the game accepts the offer. Mm -hmm. And that model would predict that we wouldn't see this war because there would be some negotiated settlement right at the start. And we can modify the model to include things like asymmetric information, where Russia knows something about their capabilities, Ukraine knows something about their capabilities, but they, don't they aren't operating with the same information. And in that case, um, Ukraine might know that they're strong and Russia doesn't know that Ukraine is strong. And so it takes time for, Russia, for, for Ukraine to show that they're strong on the battlefield. And that can update what offers Russia is willing to make or Russia is willing to accept. Um, and so this taking time to reveal what type whether Ukraine is a strong or a weak type could explain the need or the, the continuing conflict. But I think more, um, more compelling is the idea that Putin and Zelensky are, are facing domestic political pressures mm -hmm. where Putin has strong domestic political incentives to not look like he lost. Um, 
And so he is, has this incentive to push and push and push for any chance of having a win in Ukraine. And Zelensky also has strong incentives not to give in. And so if, if we think of the players not as countries maximizing the welfare of the country, but politicians maximizing their own um, interests, then we could get a situation where politicians do something that in the end is not what's for the best of the country. And while the two powers are the main ones currently in conversation about peace treaties, and there seems to have been no real common ground or steps forward, in this model, where do third parties come to play, like NATO, the United States, um, China even? Yeah, so um, these third parties um, have incentives based on um, who they want to be allied with and what they see as um, their kind of role in the world when it comes to ideological conflict, among other things. Um, and, and this gets to a, an interesting point, which is that NATO wants to support Ukraine, but they're not sending troops in because they're worried that that would antagonize Russia too much. Mm -hmm. And so there's this delicate dance that NATO is playing where they're trying to think how much support can we give to Ukraine before Putin potentially uses nuclear weapons. And that's the real threat. And that's the thing that, that people in, in um, NATO are really scared about. And this illustrates another point in game theory, which is it can be advantageous in a game theoretic setting for people to think you're crazy. So if people think that Putin's crazy enough that he could launch nuclear weapons, then they then NATO would not want to support Ukraine because they're too worried about Putin being crazy and launching nuclear weapons. And so, um, so this sort of um, image of maybe he's crazy enough that he would actually do it can be beneficial in terms of what outcome Russia gets in, in the conflict. That was a perspective that I never thought about. And going back to talking about Putin, you mentioned the domestic pressures. Um, yeah, so I was saying that it's important for Putin in this far, this deep into the war to at least appear as though he's won. And the domestic pressures that I think could be hindering this negotiation are one with Vice President Kamala Harris um, claiming and other states agreeing that Russia needs to be held accountable and their government leadership, especially for um, crimes against humanity and war crimes. And these are things that will take place after the war. But even with that aside, both states have been put in such a bad economic situation with Russia in this recession. What does rebuilding sort of look like and how might that consideration be playing a factor in dragging out this war? So rebuilding is going to be a particularly difficult process for Ukraine. So, so Ukraine's um, infrastructure has been 
just destroyed. Um, and the Ukrainian economy is going to take a long time to recover, though I expect at the end of the war, presuming that, that Ukraine is still an independent state, NATO will step in mm -hmm. and provide funding and support for Ukrainian rebuilding. Um, and I think that Russia um, is experiencing um, economic hardship, but I don't know the degree to which um, what's going to happen with their economic rebuilding and the degree to which, for instance, um, there have been talks between China and Russia, and is China going to step in and help rebuild Russia after after the war? Um, and what will China expect in, re in, in exchange for that? Um, I think that, that talking about the domestic situation in, um, in Russia is interesting because um, I was actually just reading in The New Yorker that um, sales of George Orwell's novel, 1984, have skyrocketed in Russia um, since the war. And the, the parallels between um, the, the nations in, in 1984 and Russia are pretty um, apparent. Um, so I think that it will be interesting when looking at domestic politics in Russia, where do the people actually, where are the people actually when it comes to how much they see Russian, Russian state media as being propagandists versus how much they buy into and how long will Russian elites put up with this um, degradation of the, of the Russian economy? Um, would anyone be, um, be daring enough to challenge Putin at home? And that's, you know, certainly an unanswered question. I'd say that the overarching theme I'm seeing between all of the many topics that we discussed today was that incentives, motives, and interests, they, they're always going to differ, but finding common ground seems to be something that in every field is a step forward, like with political polarization, maybe bringing things back towards the middle with intellectual property and social welfare coming to this middle ground again where the incentives are there but um promoting this public good is a first priority and finally negotiation in a war where death tolls just continue to skyrocket and finding these golden bridges back down i guess yeah, just, I, I, yeah sorry, I, I think I, I, absolutely I, and i think that that's another thing that is central to economics is just the idea that incentives really matter that people respond to incentives and you get what you pay for and you may get exactly what you pay for um, and you get what um, from people you get what they are incentivized to provide um, and those incentives can steer people towards um, policies and actions that help the public good and those incentives can be perverse incentives that have people doing things for their own self-interest that harm the public good. 
So my last question would just be in a more generalized way. With these different questions regarding polarization, how can youth begin to get involved or begin to take themselves out of this bubble where everything seems to have to be at an extreme to begin helping find these common grounds? I think that what you were saying about incentives mattering and understanding each side's incentives really matters. And so I think that what your listeners can do is try and spend at least some time stepping out of your informational bubble. So if you are um, someone who spends all of your time on MSNBC, make sure that you're watching or, you know, watching some CNN or listening to something that is more centrist and watching some Fox News and understanding what is the information that people on the other side are getting. And same thing if you're someone who listens, who watches Fox News, watch some MSNBC and not in a way to just get yourself angry, but in an, in an attempt to really understand what is the information that the other side is getting and what are they, what are they thinking about and what are they caring about? And only if you have an understanding of the other side, can you understand what sorts of compromise is possible uh, between these, you know, polarized um, parties. Mm -hmm. And I think that these are typically hard conversations to have and speaking to someone um, from what I've read and um you could please correct me if this is wrong but a lot of times unwillingness between two oppositional parties or people just holding different ideological beliefs the reason they don't want to speak to each other or talk about um, these conflicts is because they're afraid of not being heard and in this sense i think that it's important that to while opinions aren't going to shift overnight to at least start to hear what the other side has to say absolutely i agree well, thank you so much, Professor Richardson, for um, your time today and for sharing your views with our listeners tonight. Thank you so much for having me, Nathan. It was a pleasure. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. No problem. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of History for Two. Please share this podcast with your friends and tune in for other episodes. You can also find full video episodes on the website www.history42.com.